I know okay. you're from California. Okay. And you guys claim to have the happy cows, <laughs> but I'm from Wisconsin and we're the dairy state. So uh-huh. how do how do we bridge that gap? Why do you think your cows are happier than ours? And why do we think our cheese is better than yours? See, that's a very difficult conversation to have because... Talk Ag to Me, a podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brennan Black, and in today's episode, I have another consumer conversation. Helping me, help me with this episode is Joanne, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself. Yeah, so I'm Joanne. Um, I am a new podcaster. I have a podcast called The Turtle Stack, um, where Brendan was just on talking to me a little bit about agriculture. Um <laughs> I don't know much about the the field, um, which is a little bit embarrassing, but <laughs> I'm excited to learn more. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what we have in store today. Perfect. Well, I'm glad to have you on. And like, you know, the motto of this of this podcast is anyone who wants to have a conversation about ag, we're going to have it. So basically, like like Joanne said, she's a newer podcaster. Her and I connected through the online communities like I've talked to you about most of the guests I've had on, on the second season of, of Talk Academy, but she's here to have a conversation about agriculture. And like she said, we just had an episode on, on her podcast, but I think the postings are going to be a little bit off. I think this episode might come out a little bit after hers. So make sure you go and check it out. It should be out already, hopefully. And we're more than likely going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the topics we talked about on her episode and maybe some others as well. So uh, before we start, Joanne, you said you listened to a couple of my episodes, right? I did. Yes. I have, I've studied for your test. Perfect. So I'm not sure if that makes it fair, but we're going to go through it anyways. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so starting off, I know that you already kind of mentioned this, but what experience, if any, do you have with agriculture? Pretty much none. Um, okay. But I do have a little bit of secondhand experience that we did not, well, thirdhand maybe. Mm-hmm. Um so I've grown up in Wisconsin, which is the dairy state. Mm-hmm. So I have definitely been to state fair, um, where you do get to see a little bit of, you know, the cows and like, so at least a little bit of exposure that way. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister actually has a degree in horticulture. Okay. Um, but I don't understand anything about what she does. Um, but I know it has to do with like plant breeding and working with farmers to introduce different types of crops. Hmm. Um, and my brother has a small like hobby farm, like they, they raise their own chickens and they have like a vegetable garden and stuff like that. But none of, none of that is like, Like, I don't know anything about it. (laughs) At least you have, at least you have a, a, a minimal understanding of, of various agricultural practices. And that's, that's all we're looking for. So the first real, I mean, I guess that was the first real question of the test, but the first real question of the test, can you tell me where your food comes from? It comes from mostly the ground and also the animals um, and the farmers who give it to me. Perfect. Good answer. 
uh, would you mind explaining to me how chocolate milk comes to be? Well, it starts as milk, and then you add the chocolate, and then that equals chocolate milk. Perfect. And I'm assuming you, you know why I asked that question. I mean, we all want chocolate cows. <laughs> um, and if you can give me, like, chocolate pigs and chocolate chickens and, like, if we can just breed chocolate into everything, I'd be good with it. I mean, I completely agree. I don't know if genetic modification is that far along yet, but maybe one day. Hopefully. We'll get there. <laughs> exactly. So, like, you know, like we've mentioned in previous episodes, a substantial amount of the population is either unfamiliar with the source of chocolate milk or thinks that it comes from brown cows, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously, is, as we've discussed, is not the case as much as we wish it was. But yeah, like you said, it comes from regular milk, just mixed with whatever chocolate. I mean, look at Nesquik. So... Uh, the next question I have is, where do hamburgers come from? Hamburgers are cow. Correct. And so this is actually kind of a uh, kind of a branch off of that that we, I think we talked about in a previous episode. True or false, hamburgers only come from beef cows. Oh, um, dang it. I must have missed that one. I didn't <laughs> study properly. I'm going to say True. Mm. See, that is your first strike. So, and that's an understandable mistake that a lot of people are not fully aware of that. But basically, hamburgers, depending on where it's from, and steak and all these other beef products aren't just from beef cows. Dairy cows can also be turned into hamburgers. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I, I was slightly confused because I was like, aren't all cows beef? So, yeah. So, yeah, on, on in, in that form of logic yes and you know all, all cows are are usable for beef therefore you know it, they all come from beef cows but basically there's two different types of cattle industries there's beef cattle and there's dairy cattle and you know being from wisconsin i'm sure you're you're familiar with the california wisconsin dairy feud yes <laughs> but uh yeah so that's that's a common misconception is that you know dairy cows are also used actually for for most like fast food restaurants or for cheaper kind of meat you know like your mcdonald's burger most of those are dairy cows instead of beef cows so can you can you taste the difference between the two like are they fed different things or something that actually affects the quality of the meat I, I mean, I would say there's a, a, a fairly distinguishable taste difference between dairy and beef uh, burgers or steak or whatever you want to call it. But it's mostly, I mean, part of it is the fact that, yeah, they, they are fed different diets because a dairy cow is fed a diet that's basically calculated, basically, so I say basically a lot. I'm just noticing that. I need to stop that. So dairy cows are fed a diet that is very balanced. I mean, almost more balanced than a human's diet more often than not. And the diet that they're fed is calculated so that way they have the best milk production possible. They had the best bone structure. They had the best uh, protein in them. That way they can hold uh, a calf for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. A beef cow, for example, is, or, or, you know, on contrary is, is fed a diet of mostly grains and some protein to try to develop a lot of the muscularity that they need to produce a good meat because meat is just muscle. So you can taste a difference in, in, you know, uh, a gourmet steak is going to taste different than a McDonald's hamburger, for example. And that's mostly to do with how the animals are raised. But there's a lot of a lot of factors as to why they may taste different. I mean, it could just be age. A lot of dairy cows aren't turned into hamburgers until they're too old to produce milk anymore. So, okay. 
to answer your question, yes, there is a taste difference, but it's for a variety of reasons. Okay. For my next question, true or false, cows must give birth before producing milk. True. I studied for that one. Good, good, good. I'm glad that you caught on to that because that's, and that's, that's the one that I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt on just because that's, that's more of a biology question than anything. A lot of people don't really catch that one just because, you know, they assume that all cows just produce milk and, you know, it's the same with humans, the same with dogs, cats, any mammal, you know, they don't, they don't produce milk until they have something to eat that milk basically. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and you've been doing good work with your podcast because I've at least <laughs> been educated on those fields um i i do have one like misconception clarification question for you though that i feel fits into the same category of question types okay um can you explain boneless chicken wings to me because i'm pretty sure there's not boneless chickens out there (laughs) so there are in fact not boneless chickens um the boneless chicken wing is I'll be completely honest. I'm not sure how they do it, but if, if I had to guess, I would just assume that they have a bone removal process during the slaughtering um, of the chicken. I, I don't know exactly what the process looks like, but I do know that during the processing, when they, when they cut up the different cuts of meat and they're distributing them, I'm sure they have a category of a distribution that removes the bones from the wing. And I'm sure there's a, like, because it's fried, you probably don't see it, but I'm, I'm, I would imagine that there's an easy way of removing the, the bones of the wing without damaging the meat. But I don't oh, know for sure. That makes sense. I wasn't sure if they just use like the chicken breast or something and then just called it a wing and just cut it to be wing shape or. They very well could do that too. I, <laughs> the poultry industry is something that I have, a very like basic understanding of as far as like how the actual meats produced. Okay. So um, that's a fair question. I just, I wish I had an answer for you. I'll, I'll go find the answer and I'll get it to you as soon as I can, but I just don't really um, have the full explanation to that right now. That's perfectly acceptable. You're, you're knowledgeable on a lot of different things. It's okay <laughs> to have a, uh, a little blank space there. Yeah. And like I said, I, I am curious about myself because I don't really know, but I'll, I'll have to look into that and and I'll get back to you on that. Um, okay. Well, I don't feel so bad about not knowing then. All I <laughs> all I knew was that chickens do have bones. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah, that's if they didn't, I'd be very concerned as to how they're walking around. But yeah, um, yeah so no, that, that's a fair question, and that's you know, I can't know everything, obviously. So, um, <laughs> let's see, what was the next question I had on here? Oh, sorry. Nope, you're okay. Uh, I think that was the last question for my test, which means that you uh, you pass. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> I what I got eighty percent. I think I got one wrong. Well, yeah, but that that one was also it wasn't in any of the older tests, and it was kind of just I thought of it on the spot kind of thing. So I mean, okay. I don't know if you want to consider it a, a, a well, wrong. You know, it was kind of just a. I got a hundred percent. I just didn't get the extra credit. I'll take it. Yes, exactly. Good job. I'm. I'm very, uh, I'm proud that my content is, is changing lives kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really working. So I, I think you're putting out a great product. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. So before moving on, before we move on past the test, there is one question I have. I mean, I have a bunch of questions, but there's one question I have that kind of relates to the misconception issue. So mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've heard about as far as agriculture or the food system goes on social media? I mean, whether it be good or bad, what what have you learned about agriculture through the internet? Um, I mean, you see a lot of different 
things from different people. And I I try to subscribe to if I see something pop up and I didn't bother to look into it, I'm not going to like embrace it fully. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely see things, you know, negative poorly portraying like slaughterhouses and things like that, which is is kind of fair. There's only so much you can do in that regards, but you know, you'll see all the cows packed into a really tight place or chickens getting their beaks cut off and things mm. like that. Um, I hear about things about GMOs, which like I just disregard entirely. I think GMOs are fantastic. I think that they're a great tool for helping like poorer countries. If you can put more nutrients in my food or you can make them easier to grow, do that. I'm not afraid of the technology. Um, so that one I hear about and then I'm immediately like, yep, don't care about that. Or like I care about it, but I'm not concerned about it. Hmm. Um, oh, and I felt like there was one other thing, but now I'm blanking as far as like, oh, the impossible burger is something that I've been circulating around. Um, I did have the opportunity to try it. I thought it tasted good. I don't have a very refined palate, but Hmm. like I, I enjoyed it. I'd eat it again. I had no... I had no beef with it. <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, so those would probably be like the three agriculture-related things that I see the most frequently commented on. Okay, well, those are all pretty fair. I mean, that's a that's a fairly accurate representation of what we see on you know from the agriculture side. What what some of the biggest complaints are, or some of the biggest misconceptions or controversies that we face on on social media. So I'm going to try to do my best to address all of those points and, you know, answer any questions I can about them and kind of go into more depth about some of those topics. And I might bring in some of the things we talked about in your episode, even though we've, we've already kind of established them, but I'm sure I'll come up with some other points I forgot to bring up, but we'll yeah. kind of use that as the foundation of, of this episode. Perfect. So starting with the first one, you mentioned, I think, I think the first one you said was, was slaughterhouses, right? The misrepresentation of slaughterhouses. Yeah, basically just the animal living conditions. Um, Mm. You know, I understand in order to eat the cow, the cow has to die, but their lives leading up to that point and the quality, the quality of life. um, You know, you'll see images of confined spaces and, and things like that, that can be that can be a little disturbing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the biggest things that I think is important to keep in mind when seeing those and something that a lot of the ag, like the ag advocacy kind of social media groups are really trying to work on right now is making sure that people understand that, I mean, editing is, is a magical tool. So, you know, you know, there's, there's a lot that can be portrayed in, a negative light just by putting a bad, you know, a, a dark filter on it and some sad music in the background and, you know, making things look like an old black and white horror movie. When right. in reality, the, the, the thing that actually happened wasn't that bad. It was just made to look worse than it actually was. And I, I'll be the first to admit, and I think that most people in the agriculture industry would agree with me in saying that there are some bad farmers out there. There's some people that, you know, mistreat their animals, that put them in confined spaces that they shouldn't be in, that, you know, uh, abuse them or that treat them in ways that are not ideal for the animal's best living condition. And pretty much anyone who knows a farmer that does that immediately 
detaches themselves from the situation. Nobody supports those farmers. Nobody in, encourages that kind of behavior. And a lot of that is just, you know, it, it, you know, besides there being actual bad people out there, a lot of the things that are caught on social media is maybe it was just one day that farmer was just like, you know, he was having a bad day and he just got, you know, kind of caught at a bad time. And, you know, it was that one instance where he was, you know, just in the middle of working with a cow and the cow kicked him or something or the cow stepped on him and it just really made him mad. And he like, you know, slapped the cow's side to make him move or whatever. Not saying it's acceptable, but it's, it's understanding the context of the situation because, you know, that picture may show a farmer hitting a cow, but that picture didn't show the farmer getting up at two in the morning to help that cow give birth. That picture didn't show that farmer staying up until, you know, 3 a.m. every night with that cow when it was sick. That picture didn't show that farmer getting depressed after that cow died. I mean, there's a lot of context to those situations that aren't portrayed quite as accurately in, in media as they should be. And I'm not to say, you know, that's not to say that that picture is is wrong. You know, we, we should try to avoid any kind of mistreatment of animals that we can because that's not, for one, it's, it's, it's not morally sound and no farmer I know that is morally sound, which is most of them, uh, you know, no farmer agrees with abusing their animals and no farmer in, enjoys abusing their animals. It's not something that they find helpful or, or right. You know, most farmers are extremely religious and so they have a hard time justifying the mistreatment of anything. And yeah. so, but, you know, that being said, there are certain things that farmers have to do to make sure that the cow is in its best living condition possible because basically the, the the motto of animal agriculture is these things are going to feed us. So we better take care of them kind of thing. We give them the best possible life that, that we can give them with the current technology and resources and food that we have. And in exchange, they'll feed us. And that's kind of the mentality that goes into becoming an animal agriculturalist. And, you know, there's some that are better at that than others, but we just, you know, we hope that the media would start to t- pay attention to those farmers more and less of the ones, the, you know, minuscule population of those that are actually mistreating their animals. Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate truth in most industries that the sad, distressing stuff is what makes it on the news and mm-hmm. sells stories. So it it makes a lot of sense that you are seeing the vocal minority or the the unusual cases when you're seeing those sorts of things. Absolutely. And a big part of, I had an episode uh, that's actually, I think it'll be going up a week or two before this one comes out. It's with a a dairyman, good friend of mine, his name's Tyler. And he actually has a really good uh, uh, case for this, which is, you know, any, anyone who ever blames him of mistreating his animals for keeping them in, in corrals or, or for, you know, whatever it is that, that they blame him for, he always invites them out to his farm. So when they go out to his farm, they go to see the dairy cows and he shows them they're laying on extremely soft, you know, sawdust beds. They're laying under fans with misters on them 24 seven. They're in the shade and you can actually see on the cow, their breathing is very slow. They're not sweating. They're not stressed. You can see all the signs of, of their physiology is in perfect homeostasis. Like they are not, if they were stressed, they wouldn't be eating. They wouldn't be drinking. They're all chewing their cud, which is a sign of, of relaxation named bovine species. So it's like you can show on a biological standard that these animals are as happy as they're going to get, basically. And, you know, maybe not maybe not every farmer treats their cows exactly like that, but most of them try to get as close to that as they can afford. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because I know there too, like I mentioned, I'll, I'll go to state fair occasionally. Mm-hmm. And you're always the animals in pens but that doesn't mean that they're 
average life is in pens. That's just kind of what they have to do to show them at a state fair. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. It so, actually, since I, it propped in my mind because of state fair, mm-hmm. um, goats are super cute and I love them. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know much or anything about the goat, industry but whenever you go to state fair their horns are always like shaved down and it looks like it would hurt them to have that shaved off but do you know like are are they okay with that are they still happy yeah so uh basically when it comes to so cows grow horns as well i'm going to use cows because that's what i'm most familiar with but i do know a, a decent amount about goats on on that side as well so the reason that they have to shave down those horns and they usually don't shave them down they use this this uh cream that actually kind of as bad as it sounds it burns the horns off which is much faster and, and less painful than trying to shave them down you know bit by bit because that would take forever and the, and the goat would be in pain the entire time that makes sense. cream that basically burns the horns away and it's not like they have massive horns and they burn them away they burn them away when they're a couple weeks old when they're when they're just starting to grow horns and they and they make sure that those, that those horns never grow and the reason for that and it basically the dehorning process it hurts for maybe 30 minutes, if that. It's more like 10 to 15 minutes. And then the burning goes away, and they're fine. They never feel it again. They never have any issues with it. They, they don't have any long-term health effects because of it. And it doesn't affect their happiness at all. So the reason they have to, to get rid of their horns, though, is because if they're going to be living with other goats, they can't risk them hurting each other. That's that's kind of the entire... It's, it's not for, you know, because they don't like having horns on them. It's entirely for their own safety and protection. Because if they get their horns caught in a fence, if they hurt another goat with their horns, if they hurt another person with their horns, that causes a lot of issues for the farmer and for the other goats around them. So for safety concerns, they try to get rid of their horns and keep them as low as possible. Okay. that That is an acceptable answer. Every time I go to the goat pen area, I feel a little sad because it looks like it hurts, but... If if they're okay now, it's just a little bit of pain at the beginning for a better life in the future. I can I can accept that. Exactly. And it's it's the same idea as like, you know, we get our wisdom teeth pulled. Yeah, it hurts, you know, and, and well, I guess most people are pretty loopy for it. But like, you know, you get dental work done or you get, you know, surgery done. It might hurt like crazy when it happens or maybe you don't feel it because you're, you're, um, you got anesthesia going on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these like kind of intense biological procedures are used on you. But usually it's for your own safety, your own comfort, your own protection instead of, you know, that way we don't have like our teeth bugging us all the time or we don't have our like, you know, let's say you have some kind of complication in your gut, you don't have your gut hurting all the time. It's all, it's all procedures that are going to try to keep every you and everyone around you safe and comfortable. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So as far as the animal rights issue goes, that's kind of the biggest point with that is just, you know, yeah, there are some bad guys out there and we try to avoid that happening, but also keep in mind that that's that farmer's livelihood. I mean, like I know a decent amount of farmers who get, I mean, pretty deeply depressed whenever they lose a cow or they lose a goat or they lose a, you know, whatever animal they lose, if it dies and they didn't send it to the slaughterhouse and it's not just because they lose money, they treat those animals as if they're their own children. I mean, they, they think of them as family and any farmer you talk to that raises animals, you can see that those are their babies. And like they go out every morning at like five or six in the morning to feed them and, and walk and to watch over them and make sure they're doing okay to check on their health all the sick ones, they move to a different pen. That way it doesn't get anyone else sick and they can they can treat those ones separately. Like they, they treat those those animals as if they're, you know, like I said, family. And so 
it's just important to keep in mind that those farmers are looking out for the best interests of those animals with almost everything that they do. Yeah. Now, do do most farmers specialize in a specific animal? Like if a farmer is raising beef cows, would they also have dairy cows? Would they also have pigs? Or do they usually just focus on one? So it depends on the uh, size of the operation, obviously. I mean, most, most mm-hmm. farmers uh, specialize in one. I mean, like most farmers specialize in, in, in one or two crops as well. You know, you don't have a farmer growing you know, it's not like we have a garden, you have tomatoes and you have eggplants and you have watermelon, you have pumpkin. Like most farmers are going to grow one or maybe two crops depending on, on the seasons. And then once they get more money and more land, then they can grow more. The same is true for animals. You know, most farmers are like dairymen tend to only own dairies. They don't want a goat farm. They don't want to raise sheep or, or hogs. Most hog farmers only raise hogs. Most of the time, a farmer will specialize in one animal. Occasionally you do see, and it depends, like in the Midwest, it's, it's more common to see uh, multi-animal farms, but usually they're separate operations. A farmer might have a goat farm and a sheep farm, but they're not raising the same facilities. Okay, that makes sense. Just when you were talking about, you know, they they love them like pets, they're, mm. they're attached to them. It's like, well, if you have, you know, 500 different animals, how, how could you possibly care? But if you're, if you're focused... That makes a little more sense. Right. So. And you'd be surprised how many farmers can, like you just say the ear tag of a cow and they know that cow's, you know, date of birth, age, weight, you know, they know everything about that cow. Cause like I said, those are their babies. They may have 5,000 cows and they know every single one of them by ear tag and, and by their entire life story. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's hard to believe it's hard to accept, but <laughs> I know teachers that do the same thing. Not that children are farm animals, but <laughs> If if you're a teacher and you can remember a kid from your class from 10 years ago, like it's it's kind of the same thing, like to remember all of those different kids, all those different animals. If it's what you're passionate about, it makes sense that it's something you would remember. So. Absolutely. And and like, you know, like with your teacher analogy, teachers tend to make a fairly strong bond with most of their kids or at least a, a you know, a decent portion of their kids. It makes it easier to remember them. And mm-hmm. like I said, farmers make a very strong bond with their cows or their goats or whatever animals they raise. And that strong bond is what helps them remember perfectly, you know, every detail they need to know about whatever animal it is they're thinking of. And I think the final, you know, the final note I'd like to make on the animal rights thing, and I've said this a couple times before, but it's an important thing to keep in mind those animals are the reason that farmer is able to feed his family. I mean, all the money that that farmer raises comes from those animals. And so it's, it's kind of common knowledge by now, but basically no farm animal can produce as much of a valuable product as it can. If it's, if it's stressed, stress lowers the production levels of every animal. So if you have a a cow that's stressed, it's going to produce less milk and its milk is not going to taste very good. If you have a, a steer that's going in to become a hamburger that's stressed, that hamburger is going to taste awful. I mean, there's actually studies on what's called dark cutters and dark cutters are basically animals that are so stressed out that their meat is inedible. Like it's, it's almost just like you have to throw it away. Cause it's not like, it can almost make you sick. Oh. And so it's, it's vitally important that farmers try to keep their animals as, as healthy and comfortable as possible because the more stressed out they are, the less money that farmer makes. And on top of just the moral obligation, the financial obligation that farmer has to taking care of his family is reliant on those animals being as comfortable and productive as possible. Yeah. So. Well, wonderful. Yeah. So that's a lot better. (laughs) So that's, that's, that's the animal rights part of, of your answer there. What was the next thing you brought up? 
Um, I, um, say it was GMOs. Oh yeah. GMOs. Um, I'm, I'm team GMO personally. So, um, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I think more people need to be on that side. Uh, are there any questions you have about GMOs? I mean, you seem fairly knowledgeable in what they are and what they do. I mean, I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable. I just, I know they're not franken foods i know we don't need to worry about like oh you did a genetic thing to the tomato and therefore i'm gonna grow a third eye (laughs) um i know like my my value and appreciation for them largely comes to when it's when i'm thinking about other countries Hmm. um i know there's a lot of places that don't have as good of soil and climate for growing and if we can develop plants that grow better there i'm for it um, there's people that can't afford as much food. So if we can make the food that they have more nutritious or introduce a vitamin to a plant that they can grow better, like, I, I don't want to get super political, but I, I feel like people who get hung up on no GMOs are people that can afford to be picky about their food. <laughs> and the point of GMO is to help people who can't, um, I mean, it also helps me. Like, I want a, a tastier apple. I want a vegetable that lasts a little bit longer in my fridge when I'm not eating it because I'm eating bagel bites instead. Like, <laughs> um, but I, I think the real power there is what we can do for other people with what's being developed. Yeah, absolutely. And GMOs are, I personally believe, the ticket to having a sustainable future for for food supply and. GMOs are kind of an interesting and, and somewhat controversial topic. I'm, I use somewhat lightly. It's a very controversial topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, so as far as the feeding other countries thing, I think you have a really excellent point, And that's kind of a big part of using GMOs right now is trying to find ways we can use them to feed developing countries and help them out. Uh, there's been a, a, a GMO produced called Golden Rice. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Yes, I have. Okay. Um, but why don't you explain it? Because... I've heard about it through the internet, which might not be 100% accurate. Well, I have too, but I've I've done a a fair amount of research on it, I think. And golden rice basically is, it's a crop, it's, you know, it's rice that has been genetically modified to have more beta carotene in it, which for those of you who don't know, beta carotene is the inactive form of vitamin A, which is what it has, which is what carrots have in them. That's why it gives you good eyesight. So vitamin A deficiencies are the leading cause of childhood blindness in a lot of uh, developing countries. And so the there's a, an organization called the GMO Literacy Project, and I think that they were behind this, but if not, they at least wrote the articles on it. Uh, but basically, they were working on trying to bring golden rice to developing countries so that way it could try to help aid with that childhood blindness epidemic that was going on because of their vitamin A deficiency, because rice was a lot more available to them than carrots or other like, like pumpkins, for example, like high beta carotene uh, vegetables and rice was, was much easier and, and much more affordable for them. So they just made a version of rice that had a lot of good vitamins in them. And so things like that are, are what I picture when I think of helping other, other countries with GMOs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's, that's very much the same story that I had heard. Um, I know I heard that they did run into some issues actually getting it implemented mm-hmm. because 
America started having the negative stereotypes towards GMOs and then the developing countries latched onto some of that fear. So mm-hmm. I I know I heard that there was actually some hang up in actually getting them to accept a very valuable product to them. Um, yeah. So no, just, just because you can afford to, you know, grow your own food or, you know, whatever, the the way we eat in America does affect the way other people have the opportunity to eat in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And a big problem that we've seen right now, and this is going to get, I guess, semi-political, is basically the United States is the number one trade partner when it comes to agricultural products than any other country in the world. I mean, we trade with everybody, or at least we used to. Our trade partners have kind of gone down a lot, especially lately. Um, but we have a lot of trade agreements all over the world. And we used to have more, but we lost a lot of them because we were genetically modifying our crops. And a lot of countries, especially in in Western Europe and in uh, different parts of Africa, are very reluctant to take genetically modified crops. And most countries actually on the on the other side of the lake from us are are straight up banning it from their country. I mean, I talked to a Swedish farmer a couple years ago, three or four years ago now about this he he came to uh california for our world bag expo and him and i were talking about how sweden was struggling so much to produce its own food just because of its environment and its climate and its soil and all that kind of stuff and they were very close to being entirely dependent on imports just because their country banned gmos because they don't know what they are we're kind of reaching a state now, which is, I mean, the United States is, is having a, a big issue with that too. People are trying to get GMOs banned because they are not aware of how good or useful they are. But like you said earlier, developing countries are latching onto that mindset. They're fearful of this technology because they don't realize how beneficial it is or even what it is. And because of that, we're having such a, a hard time getting these resources to those countries that need it most. That That's why we're seeing a lot of the like, you know, which besides the financial and economic parts of it too, but like a lot of like the uh, developing countries having uh, nutritional deficiencies, world hunger kind of stuff, massive poverty. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is is due to the fact that these countries are rejecting the food that we're trying to give them that's going to help them. But how about not that? <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, if it was that simple, I, I would be all on board with it, but we're, we're in a constant fight. Because, okay, and maybe, maybe you can clear this up a little bit for me because i don't understand why people even have any negative connotation towards them because my understanding is that farmers have been breeding plants since agriculture began like you you have your good crop you breed you produce you know you take the seeds from the good tomatoes you make better tomatoes the next year you that's that's always been a thing Um, and isn't genetically modifying them basically just taking science and like helping that process go quicker and with a little more precision? Pretty so, much. Yeah. So I sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I just said yeah because I did. Okay. Um yeah, so pretty much genetic modification is basically just a catalyst, which in chemistry terms means that this 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 process was going to happen anyways through natural selection, through selective breeding, through evolution, whatever you want to call it. But we're using scientific processes to make it happen faster because we need it to happen now. And we don't have time to wait, you know, several generations like we used to way back in the day. 
so selective breeding, like you said, has always been a big aspect of agriculture. We pick the crops that have the best traits. We pick the animals that have the best traits, and we breed them to each other to try to get better traits in the offspring. It's called mm-hmm. heterosis or hybrid vigor. It's you know it's a, it's a big process in genetics that's or it's a big concept in genetics that's being played with a lot with humans, and you know they think that subconsciously we even try to do that without realizing it. And so, a lot of the reason that genetic modification is so controversial now to kind of answer your question about why people are so against it is because i mean there's a few different reasons Uh, a a big part of it is because it's a very new science even though it's kind of not uh the practice is is not new like we said crossbreeding has been around since the beginning of agriculture which has been hundreds and maybe even thousands or even longer years ago and it's always been something that's been part of our uh species is just you know crossbreeding to get better things i mean like your dog is not what dogs were like way back in the day. That's a genetic modification. As humans, we are genetic modifications because our genes have been modified through crossbreeding. We're not like the original humans. That's just not how evolution and adaptation work. But it's, I, I personally don't see why it's so controversial to think that we can, that we should do that for our food, you know, and there's arguments that say that it's, you know, it's, un, it's unnatural to accelerate that process. And maybe there's some truth to that, but really when we have, you know, a world population that's dramatically increasing. We have countries that are starving. We have, you know, a food supply that's only going to sustain us for so long. Like, it doesn't sound like that bad of an idea to me. Yeah. And so it's it's basically the, the, the reasons that I have seen through my research and through talking to people about why genetic modification is so dangerous is because there's rumors. And again, it's it's relatively new science. The idea of taking genes from one thing and putting them in another thing is somewhat new. That's only been around since the late 1990s. Like 1996, I think, was the first time a genetic modified, a genetically modified organism actually hit the shelf. And that was the flavor saver tomato. Basically, since then, there's not that many GMOs now. I mean, like there's some. I mean, the actual list of all GMOs is relatively short compared to the list of all crops that are not genetically modified. I think it's like only like eight or ten like total crops that are genetically modified really oh yeah it's it's not that many at all it's like soybeans cotton corn um tomato you know potatoes alfalfa like a lot of it's like like hay and like stuff we use to feed animals mm-hmm. like, like tobacco is genetically modified but like most of it is is you know it's just animal feed type stuff a lot of the stuff that we eat as humans very very little of it's actually genetically modified and basically i i understand the idea like it's a new science so we don't know what the long-term effects could be but there hasn't been a single study to date that's shown there's there's been any kind of negative side effects to eating genetically modified organisms at all and we've we've seen a lot of pushback from the communities of you know it's new science so we don't trust it or it's it's unnatural so we don't trust it or it's you know like there's rumors that it is associated with uh, like when you eat GMOs, it has, it has a, a chance of giving you autism, which hasn't been proven at all by anyone ever. Right. There's there's rumors that it has an in- increased chance of giving you cancer. It's like, well, so does going outside. So I don't know what to tell you. But <laughs> <laughs> it, there's, there's a lot of controversy over the science itself. And a lot of people don't trust it simply because they just don't know what it is and they're scared. That's all it is. It's just, it's fear of the unknown. Yeah. And people don't do their research. People don't ask people they don't ask questions they don't look into it themselves they just kind of they base everything they know off of facebook and that's as everyone knows you know not the most reliable source in the world yeah yeah and i mean honestly i think if you took gmos and just found them a really good marketing campaign rebranded them like 
like I said, they're doing good things. They're adding nutrients. They're helping your food grow better. And like, yeah, they just, they just need a really good, um, publicity person behind them, I think. Cause no, I, I agree. They're, they're valuable. <laughs> I agree completely. And the, the genetically, the genetic literacy project is actually working on that right now, trying to produce like marketing campaigns for GMOs. But oh. I think we're a little late on the train there. Like we, we should have been doing this 20 years ago before people started getting fearful about this. But yeah, well, I mean, I think no, nobody could have predicted the internet. And before the internet, I don't know that people put as much thought into stuff or like they wouldn't notice stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think 30 years ago you put GMO label on something and nobody's going to think twice about it. But with the power of the internet, one or two people comment and say, what the heck? And then everybody else is looking at it too. So um, yeah. it's it, it a wonderful tool, but for, for farmers and for people to be kind of late to the game, to know how to um, counteract it is completely forgivable <laughs> yeah no absolutely and like i said i never get mad at somebody when they don't trust gmos i just am very careful with how i talk to them and make sure that they understand that it's it's a science yes and there's i guess there's the potential that maybe it has side effects that we're unaware of but that hasn't been proven yet and is doing way more good than it can ever do harm yeah but anyways and then what was i'm trying to remember what the last thing you brought up was the impossible burger impossible burger that's right a, a newer a newer development that i'm i'm curious about so i have many opinions on the impossible burger <laughs> i uh, i believe you would it's it's kind of a it's a strange phenomenon that's what it is because the idea behind it is like okay so there's two different mindsets here. You can take the scientific approach to it or the the agricultural approach, which is it's still food, it's still produced by ag, we should support it. Or you can take the animal ag approach to it, which is, you know, people are, are you know, looking for alternatives to not trust animal agriculture, which is also true. I mean, there's there's a lot of avenues you can take with that discussion and all of them are equally true. It's just a matter of like, I find a hard time stating how I feel about the impossible burger because personally, I mean, as someone who grew up in animal agriculture, I disagree with the, with the political reasons that it exists, but I'm also not the type to tell somebody how they should live their life. If they want to eat, you know, completely plant-based food, that's entirely on them. I don't think it should be forced on anyone else. I mean, I don't think that somebody should force a lifestyle onto somebody else and say, Hey, you should eat, you know, the impossible burger because it's so much better for you or this so much, you know, it, it saves animals lives and all this kind of stuff, which neither of those things have been proven true at all. But it's, it's, it's a, it's a unique phenomenon from a scientific perspective. And as a science nerd, I think it's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. But I also see a lot of issues with the political reasons that it exists. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair, a fair assessment. And you know, it, it is fair to look at it and be like, well, it's going to hurt animal farmers, but it might benefit plant-based farmers. And you can't really say I'm willing to trade one person's livelihood for another. Like, that's not fair. 
Exactly. Um, we've we've talked already in length about the animal rights concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of the biggest arguments I've seen for a plant based diet is that it's it's a large percentage of the crops that are grown that go into taking care of animals. Um, and I forget what that percentage is. And again, I'm I'm going off of YouTuber opinions here. Like, I don't know any of this. But what I was led to believe is that most of our most of our plant products are going towards feeding animals and then the animals fe- go towards feeding us, which is inefficient. Mm-hmm. Um where if if more people were eating plant-based diets, then a lot of the land and a lot of production of the food could go directly to people. Um, so I, I don't, I do, do you understand what I'm saying? Is there any like truth validity to that? So I, I definitely understand the argument there. And I've had that discussion with a lot of people. And I think that the thing that a lot of people tend to miss in that argument is that not all land is farmable. So it's, like certain soil types are better for growing certain crops than others. And so the reason that we have animal agriculture, besides just the fact that we've always done it is because the land that we, that we raise our animals on may not be suitable for growing food that we can eat as humans. And so I don't think the animal agriculture is ever going to be completely replaced by a plant-based source of food, just because we can't grow enough plants with the land that we still have available to feed an entire population. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and again, like it's it, it, it's that sort of thing where you get a piece of information and then you share it, somebody else shares it, and slowly that information loses its validity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the idea that even if everybody tomorrow said, you know what, I'm going to go vegetarian, let's turn all of the cow farms into plant farms. You, you literally can't do that. They can't grow the same crops in those areas that that they can raise cattle on. Right. So, And that's like a lot of the issue of why, you know, like we're losing farmland by the day, basically. Farmland is going down fairly dramatically and, you know, farmers are struggling to find methods to produce more food on less land. Well, even the land that we've already converted into urbanization can't be turned back into farmland. It's it's nearly impossible to convert land that once was farmland back into it just because of how badly we damage the soil environments. And so a lot of the animal agriculture areas that we have, you know, dairies or, or large scale ranches on. Yeah. We could, we could tear down the, the, the farm, the dairy, the ranch, whatever, but the chances of us being able to revitalize that land into something we can grow edible crops on is slim to none basically. And like I said, I completely understand the argument as people wanting to do that. It does make more logical sense that way. But when you look at it from a nutritional standpoint, even, you know, the nutritional uh, requirements that our bodies need, to try to consume as much plant material as we would need to consume to equate the amount that we can get from the meat side of things without any kind of supplementation. I just don't think that we can, we can grow as much of, as, as we're going to need for that kind of demand. Yeah. And that I feel like I've heard different um, specifically in regards to the impossible burger. I feel like I've heard different things about its nutritional value because one source I listened to said that it's like the same as far as protein and calories to a regular burger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the cholesterol that was reduced, which doesn't quite make sense to me. Um, and then there's other people that are like, oh, well, it's healthier for you because it's it's plants. 
but if they're like, I don't think it's actually meant to be healthier. It's just a meat alternative. Right. So what I've heard, and, and I'll, you know, I'll admit that I haven't done the most extensive amount of research on the Impossible Burger. I've done, you know, a minimal amount just, you know, to have a discussion on it. But I don't know all of the nutritional facts about it off the top of my head. No. I, I have heard that it is, you know, basically identical to a, a meat source in terms of protein and, like I said, calories. The cholesterol level may be lower. I, I don't know if it is or not. Um, and if it is, I mean... I have a big problem with the nutrition industry and that's a whole separate argument, but I mean, they're, they're saying now that cholesterol that you consume doesn't affect the cholesterol in your body. They're two different types of cholesterol. So I don't even know how much that really matters. And so it's, there's just, there's so much inconsistency with the arguments for the impossible burger that I don't know really what to believe from, you know, I don't, I don't know what consumers are expected to believe because there's a stigma that, yeah, it's not meat. So it's healthier, but I mean, there's a lot of meats that are healthier than a lot of plant alternatives. I mean, soy has been proven to be as bad, if not worse than beef, like Turkey has been proven to be better than soy. So I don't see the nutritional benefit in the impossible burger. If it is just an alternative because people don't want to eat meat, that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, I just don't think it should be pushed as the new norm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an acceptable, it's, it is nice to have an option out there for people that, you know, decide to, to value a vegetarian diet for one reason or another. Um, but yeah, it, talking to you, it feels like a lot of the concerns that people have, you know, as far as the animal well-being and um, the proper use of land, like the, the only other real argument that I hear frequently is cow methane and greenhouse gases and, and that aspect. Um like those are those are the three reasons I mostly hear people talk about the meat industry in a negative light. Right, and I've you know, like I said, I've heard basically every reason that that's out there. I've actually heard more than what you've brought up, and I've I've done done my homework on all of them just because you know, as someone who grew up in the meat industry, like I raised beef cows for a little while, and I I competed in in state fairs and that sort of thing, and I had a lot of you know experience in the beef industry. I had to learn very quickly how to be ready for those types of conversations. I did my research and I've, I've learned that there, there are some, some pros and some cons to the, to the meat industry. And some of the arguments that the, you know, the animal rights activists or the, or the vegan community make are fair and they're accurate, but a lot of them are, uh, I'm not gonna say ill-founded, but a lot of them are just kind of, they're missing a piece of the puzzle, like the whole land thing, you know? Yeah. It makes sense to convert all of our land to crops if we could, actually do that it's just not how the land works though mm -hmm. and so with, with the whole methane argument i was actually planning on transitioning into this anyway because i don't know if you've heard of the new lemongrass burger from burger king i have not you you did mention that in our pre-conversations but i don't know what that is okay so burger king released an ad uh i think it's been a week or two now and it's basically got the entire agricultural community extremely upset with them about it and it's this ad that basically has, you know, um, what's his name? Mason Ramsey. Oh, the um, yodeling kid. I don't know. Okay. So he's like this kid. I think he's like maybe 12 and he like got famous off of singing Hank Williams songs in a Walmart. And he like became like this like super famous singer, I guess. Okay. So basically they had, the, they created this ad with him and a bunch of other kids, like no older than like 12 or so all singing about how terrible 
the the beef industry is for the environment about how like you know cows producing methane is like the number one cause of of climate change and all this kind of stuff and that it's you know it, it's like the, the meat industry needs to needs to be held accountable and basically none of their ad had anything to do with their product like they, they didn't try to sell any kind of burgers until like the very very end the entire ad was just bashing the beef industry that's why everyone got upset about it but the the conversation that was had about it was that you know the beef industry is is not so great at, at containing their methane which i think that there's a lot of conversation to be had in that regard but there's also a lot of pieces missing to the other side of the argument which is the beef industry the dairy industry the animal agriculture industry as a whole is actually doing really really good at at containing their methane lately they've produced a lot of new technology there's methane digesters which are basically just giant machines that turn methane into usable energy there's crops like i mentioned and i think it was in your episode that they can take the methane out of the air and use it for usable things like there's there's a lot of ways that we're reducing our methane usage and when everything went into um you know quarantine mode and everyone stopped driving the pollution rates went like dramatically low I mean, like agriculture was still going and the pollution and, and the air quality improved and like, you know, the, uh, the, the basically the, the environmental footprint that was supposedly on the part of agriculture went down dramatically. And so that's right. not to say that the animal agriculture doesn't have any kind of impact because it definitely does. But to completely undersell the amount of work that scientists have been putting in, the farmers have been putting in, the cows have been putting in to try to keep a lot of that stuff from, from causing the damage that it might have caused, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago is just kind of disingenuous, I feel like. So that's what the lemongrass burger is. It's supposed to be a burger that's only slaughtered. It's it's a burger that's only produced by cows who were fed just lemongrass, which is supposedly supposed to lower their methane emissions. I'm not sure how or if that's even true, okay. but that's the argument. So the burger's not made out of lemongrass. The cows no. are fed lemongrass. No. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds awful <laughs> yeah no and i i haven't tried it i haven't tried the impossible burger either so i have no opinion on its taste but just the politics behind the lemongrass burger are something that i just have a hard time finding it an upside to yeah it also feels very weird for me from an industry that you said it was burger king that has yep. it like mm -hmm. they're still selling their normal burgers aren't they Yep. Or are they to all lemongrass? Nope, it's it's just one of the things on their menu now. They haven't changed their other menu at all. Okay, so basically their ad is 99% of our um, menu is immoral. Yep. Get this one item? Mm-hmm. Okay, Pretty good much. job, Burger King. <laughs> right? So, and that's, that's what I had the issue with. Like, I don't have an issue with, like, I'm, I'm a big proponent in the idea that companies should be able to market however they want to market. That's fine. But when mar when companies are marketing just for a political gain instead of to actually sell something that's when i start to have a problem with it i think that they still have the right to do that i just think that it's not a good idea and it's, it's a bad conversation that's being had because there's no conversation there they're just saying hey trust us because we're burger king when like you said they're completely contradicting themselves on their own menu yeah yeah and i i mean i think with all of these conversations there is always two sides um mm -hmm. sometimes more and this the side that yells the loudest is not always the correct side um which is why i i try to as a person i think i mentioned at the beginning if i don't really know i don't 
pretend like I know. And I hope I never came off in this podcast as like attacking or being like, no, this is, no. This is the no, right thing. Um, but that's, that's why I'm curious is because you get hit with this information and it feels valid. I mean, the internet said it, so it has to be true. Um, but I, I want to hear more sides of that discussion and I want to, I want to know. And you've brought up so many points that. I've never heard the other side of them. I've only heard the catchy BuzzFeed, mm -hmm. um, like trendy side right now. So, yeah. And I think that the conversation is the most important part. I mean, I never try to, and especially not with this podcast, I never try to change anyone's mind. The only thing about somebody's mind I want to change is just the fact that there's other sides to the conversation. Like you said, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not here to, to pick a fight. I'm not here to, to try to push someone, you know, one way or the other on, on a certain topic. I'm just here to provide different parts of the conversation that are being missed, whether that's on our side or on the other side. I mean, I brought farmers on here before and I bring up things that consumers have talked to me about that they didn't even think about before. And it, it changed their perspective on, on how they're having these conversations. And I think that's more important than anything. The fact that we're even having this discussion that we're, we're talking about things that, yeah, like I brought up things that you'd never considered. You brought up questions that I had never been asked before. So it, it's a good, it's a good thing to have this kind of this discussion even happening in the first place. Well, not everybody puts as much thought into boneless chicken wings as I do. <laughs> I still need to go look that up. I, I, I'm very, very curious myself now. <laughs> but um, no, I, I don't think that you came off attacking at all. And I, I, I definitely appreciate bringing up a lot of things you brought up because a lot of people are fearful of bringing up those things because they're they're afraid that I'll take offense to it or all the, they'll all start attacking them for it. And that's the last thing that this podcast is for. I, you know, the entire purpose of... of you know, what I'm trying to do, even outside the podcast, just, you know, my role in the ag industry and my role in the consumer part of things is trying to bridge the gap, you know, throwing out like, like I mentioned before, you know, on your episode, how we had the discussion about which Star Wars droid make a good farming robot. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I've had discussions about video games and how, I don't know if you, if you play a lot of video games, but, uh, Stardew Valley. With you, yeah. Okay. Are, are you familiar with Stardew Valley? Oh, Yes. <laughs> I love Stardew Valley. That's good. I, I've had discussions about how Stardew Valley is like, despite being super simplistic and the farming is not that hard, the idea behind you have you have so many things to do and not enough time to do them or energy is a perfect representation of a farmer's life on the daily. And that's a good rep representation of most people who work hard. But I mean, there's certain parts of the world outside of agriculture that can relate to this conversation that I, I, I try to work really hard on bridging that gap between the farmer and the consumer and trying to get that discussion happening more often. And, and like I said, if, if anyone to bring on the show or anyone who listens to the show walks away with this without changing their mind at all, but they go and talk to someone else about what they heard, that's all I'm looking for. Uh, did you have any other uh, questions that I could answer for you right now? Well, I did want to real quick, you, you mentioned I never came off as attacking and I do need to just do a real quick attack because I know okay. you're from California okay. and you guys claim to have the happy cows, <laughs> but I'm from Wisconsin and we're the dairy state. So uh -huh. how do, how do we bridge that gap? Why do you think your cows are happier than ours? And why do we think our cheese is better than yours? See, that's a very difficult conversation to have because I am not super familiar with, with what makes the big difference between Wisconsin and California's dairy industries. Um, I would say 
So certain operations gear their cows towards producing one product or another. So some some dairies might have cows that only produce fluid milk, some that only produce cheese, some that only produce, you know, yogurt or ice cream or whatever it like they have different purposes for their cows. So I'm guessing most of the operations in Wisconsin are based around producing milk that is going into cheese. Whereas in California, we specialize in a lot of different types of milk. And not to mention that we just have a lot more, I don't know if we have a lot more dairies or if we just have a lot more dairy men or, or what the case is, but I know we have a substantial just dairy community here that I'm not sure what Wisconsin's looks like. So I can't talk on your part. I just know that the the dairy industry is a very competitive one and the numbers of like who's in first as far as dairy production just fluctuates constantly. So, I mean, California was in the lead for a little while and then Wisconsin took over and then Texas beat us both for a while and then they went back to California. Yeah. New York's actually up there too. Really? Oh yeah. New York's a big dairy state. I kind of always forget that New York is not New York City. I'm, I'm <laughs> I think sorry. everyone does. It's it's a big state, and a lot of it is like really pretty, like forests and stuff. But I always am just like New York City doesn't have any cows. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I think everyone kind of. Well, people forget that California even has cows too. So that's that's a very fun thing to tell people. They're like, "You're from California, and you farm." It's like, yeah, they're like, "You don't you don't surf." Everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll admit, if it if it weren't for the Happy Cows campaign, I would have forgotten. So, Right. Yeah. No, that's understandable. So just for the record, as of 2019, I don't have the 2020 stats, but as of 2019, California was in the lead for dairy production and Wisconsin was in second. Dang it. <laughs> Dang but it. I, I mean, we, we do have some pretty happy freaking cows, I got to say. Yeah. Do you go out and ask them? Check how their day is doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, every time I go and feed cows on my brother-in-law's dairies, I always walk by. Morning, girls. How you doing? Walk over, pet them for a little bit before they get up. They're all super, you know, just they're just chill. Okay. I, don't know how you, I don't know what you guys are doing to your cows to piss them off, but I mean, we're we're doing a pretty good job over here. I guess I, guess I just <laughs> haven't visited our cows in a while. Maybe they're just lonely. It could be. You just got to come by and say hi every now and then. Sometimes they just want to talk. Yeah. I, I keep assuming that the farmers are are taking care of it but maybe i, maybe so. I should stop by a dairy farm and just see how see how they're doing check yeah, out reach out to your local dairyman just say hey can i come talk to your cows for a bit i guarantee he's gonna be very confused but it might be kind of fun he'll be confused but happy <laughs> that's the best way right? exactly so i think that'd be actually that kind of gives me an idea for an episode i kind of want to do a a california dairyman versus a wisconsin dairyman like how do we what do we do about this this rivalry <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we we could make our cows happier, and you can figure out how to get cheese out of your cows, I guess. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. again, I know I have no real emotional attachment to the industry, but I have to have some state pride here. And oh yeah, no, the, yeah. the rivalry's got to continue. It's just too much fun. Yeah, exactly. And awesome. like we said, I already forgot whose podcast it was on, mine or yours, but. Any yeah. any advancement to the technology helps everybody. So if a if a rivalry between California and Wisconsin to have happier cows, that's just going to make all the cows happier as a whole. So exactly, and that's the beauty of the capitalist system is you know if you guys are producing a better product than us, we got to figure out what we're doing wrong so we can make our cows happier, we can make our milk taste better, we can make our cheese taste better, and the consumer mm-hmm. benefits. So it's 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 a great system. Perfect. So well, I think. I mean, I, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add or any questions or anything like that, but um, 
Yeah, I think I covered all of the all of the bullet points. I I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um I Yeah, I can't think of any other questions. Okay. So, I had a couple other questions on my list, but we mostly addressed them. Uh one was, do you know what issues face the agricultural industry right now? And we pretty much tackled most of them. I mean, like animal rights, uh, regulation, environmental, drought, that kind of thing. Yeah. We talked about drought very... I don't know if we talked about drought at all, actually, now that I think about it, but that's that's a whole other issue. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that. I, I mean, not directly related to agriculture, but one of the things that I have mused with my friends is as powerful and impressive as the human race is, we can't do diddly against weather. Right. Um, so I imagine that that's exceptionally true for, for farmers. If, if we have a, a huge rain season or a, a dry spell, we can't make the sun stop. We can't, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. No, farmers have done, I mean, they've done an incredibly impressive job adapting to it, but there's only so much you can do. I mean, they developed irrigation systems and they've, they've created like through either crossbreeding or, for, or through GMOs, they've created crops that were tolerant to different types of weather. So you have, they actually genetically modified strawberries. So that way they are more resistant to the cold weather. They've, oh. uh, they've engineered crops that were more resistant to drought, more resistant to heat, to, to wind. I mean, like they have all kinds of, of weather resistant crops now, but I mean, it just takes one really, really bad drought and that farmer can't get enough water and his crops all die. So, I mean, we can only do so much. Yeah. But that, they're making some pretty, uh, some pretty advanced, uh, you know, steps forward, which is, is pretty cool to watch. I mean, I'd be curious to see just how far a farmer has to be pushed before he just can't fight back anymore. Cause they are, they don't like to go down without a fight. <laughs> I'm glad. Cause I need them. Uh, <laughs> I've I've always thought if the apocalypse hit and I had to get my own food, I'd be a vegetarian for a week and then I'd be dead. Like yeah. I <laughs> I need people who can get me my food. Yep. No. Exactly. I mean, it, and that's that's kind of the whole point of this whole conversation is just I just want people to understand just how important agriculture is to their entire lives. They don't have to support the farmers. They don't have to, you know be best friends with all the farmers, but just, you know, don't make their jobs any harder than they already are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That, seems, that seems like a very reasonable request. I think I have a couple more, just very short questions. One of them is, um, I think we mostly address this too. What fears or concerns do you have regarding agriculture? Um, very few. Like, yeah, I mean, the the animal rights is probably the biggest one that I had and talking to you cleared up a lot of that. Um, you know, there were a lot of misconceptions there that you you see a scary headline and you feel bad because cows are cute. They got big eyes, but they taste good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my biggest like concern from the industry. And then my biggest concern like from a... Um, supporter perspective is just the bad publicity with gmo because i i know it can do a lot of good so i i want that stigma to go away um and i don't really know how to help with that but yeah no and that's just you know it's one of those things that's just going to take a lot of time and some really really creative people and people like yourself just you know not getting into the the uh the false advertisements and and the uh you know the the misinformation being spread around just making sure you understand that 
everything that we do is for the benefit of the consumer and helping other people understand that as well. So mm-hmm. um, I think, oh, I did have one more that I ask all of my, all of my consumer guests. So could you explain to me, cause this is kind of another one of like the part of the test questions. Oh no, I already got a hundred percent. I know this is, this is another extra credit one though. Okay. Could you explain to me the process that food goes through from the farm all the way to your plate? Every step it goes through. You can be very general. No, No, I couldn't possibly begin to imagine all of it. Um, So, I mean, I'm going to say step one is the farmer producing the food. So, you know, raising the cow, planting the seeds, um, harvesting. And then there has to be some sort of process for them connecting to um, like storage and shipping because a lot of that food would need to be preserved and it's way to me um and then yeah some sort of a shipping process to get it from the farm to the store actually there'd have to be a whole like canning stage in between because i i wouldn't imagine most farms do their own packaging Hmm. so farm to packaging to shipping to grocery store to me you pretty much got it right, right on, on the first try. Yes. That's actually pretty impressive. Most people at least miss the processing part of things, but that's the whole, like the packaging, the the canning, all that kind of stuff. So in its most basic form, like I'm just going to take milk, for example, because milk's an easy one. Mm-hmm. You know, cow produces, the farmer produces the cow, which produces the milk. The milk gets, actually the milk gets uh, stored at the dairy for a short amount of time. And then the truck comes and picks it up, takes it to the processing plant. That's where it gets pasteurized. It gets uh, bottled and you know labeled and all that kind of stuff. From there, the distributor, which is the the trucking company, or, or you know the like they have like uh, companies that actually do all the marketing kind of stuff, and, and they sell it to the retailer. Goes from pr- from processing to distributor, and then from distributor to the retailer. That's you know your, your local grocery store or like farmers market or restaurant or whatever it is. And then from there, the consumer, you go and pick it up, and now you have your nice, clean, and safe milk. And so that's the most basic form. And every food goes through that. I mean, there's 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 exceptions for specific farmers and for specific operations some of them are straight just like i know a a pork producer who you can go to his pork farm and pick which pig you want and then they'll process it all right there they'll put like they go through the whole slaughterhouse you know facility right there they cut up the meats and they give you your cut right there and so like there's i could never do that (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to walk all of it you just pick the pig and then you know you wait a couple hours and then they have your pork chops ready i don't i mean i i am i am a meat eater 100 (laughs) percent. i don't know that i could eat something that i looked into the eyes of like that's fair my mom's the same way and she she you know had to deal with me and and my siblings all raising cows our entire life so yeah uh, but yeah, no, so that's, that's and like, there's, there's obviously exceptions to that process, but basically it goes from, you know, farm to processor to distributor, retailer, and then consumer. That's your, your step-by-step. Okay. So, and most people, you know, your average consumer, at least from what I've learned, kind of misses that step. They think it goes straight from farm to retailer or it goes from farm to processor to retailer. And they miss that there's a lot of like, there's a whole trucking industry that gets, you know, employed by farmers. There's a whole, 
you know, processing part of things that they have machines that can like analyze citrus. They can look at an orange and tell you, you know, if it's got any damage on it or if it's healthy or if it's got a lot of juice in it, or, you know, they have machines that can, they can analyze all those kind of stuff. That way when they package it, it is in its most ideal packaging possible for the consumer's, con- uh, uh, you know, best interest basically. And then you have like the whole labeling department where, you know, people do the marketing and labeling and, and all that kind of stuff before it goes on to the, the retailer. So it's an important process, but it's one that's easily forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think those are all the questions I had. Is there anything else you had for, uh, for me? Um, nothing that I can think of. Um, yeah, no, you, you cleared up a lot of the stuff that I had questions on and then the questions that arose from things you said, you answered perfectly well. So (laughs) I'm, I'm very happy and content. Awesome. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you for coming on, you know, um, always happy to have a conversation with somebody who isn't quite as, as, uh, familiar with, with the industry that I do my best to educate about. So I hope I did a somewhat decent job. <laughs> you did a wonderful job. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed having you on my podcast. I enjoyed being on your podcast and I liked thinking about things that I don't always take time to think of when, when we started talking um, online, I didn't know that I had as many questions as I had and to kind of take a step back and be like, wait a second, I don't know about this and I should. Hmm. So I'm, I'm really glad that you approached me and that I, I had the opportunity to, to put some thought into it. Yeah. And that's a big part of what I'm, what I'm trying to do here. I learned very quickly that your average consumer, you know, like you said, just don't think about these things all that often. And that's perfectly fine. You know, we don't expect you to, but when, you know, we have regulations and we have people making Facebook posts that are are influencing purchasing decisions, that sort of thing, when all that stuff's affecting us, it's, it's important that we have an understanding that, you know, our consumers understand that we're to be trusted and that sort of thing. So I learned very quickly that people aren't going to come to me, so I'm going to go to them. I'm going to make sure that they, like you said, you know, they're, they're asking questions that they didn't even know they had. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So I think I think that if you know if you don't have anything else, oh, uh, where do, where can people find you if they're if they're looking for you on the internet? Oh yeah. So um, my favorite thing that you could do is check out my podcast, The Turtle Stack. Um, and I'm pretty much everywhere else as the turtle stack right now. So Facebook, I'm pretty, um, active in, I have an Instagram, I have a Twitter, um, and a Pinterest actually that are all the turtle stack. Awesome. Yeah. And it's like, like I said, guys, it's a really, really fun podcast. I was on there for an episode, which by the time you guys are hearing this is a couple weeks old now, but it's a really fun episode and it's very good. Just kind of brain break, you know, listen to, to it and learn some really cool new things kind of podcasts. And I enjoy listening to it quite a bit. So I definitely recommend it. Well, um, awesome. thank you. I think that, yeah, well, uh, I like to thank uh, again, you know, Joanne here for joining me for this episode is a lot of fun and I had a lot of fun talking to her about it. Um, I'd like to thank our, all of our listeners, all five of them, hopefully. And, um, uh, yeah, anyone who has any questions about agriculture or anything that I said in this episode that you guys have more you want to you want to say about, if I missed anything, if, if you know I could have said something better, feel free to let me know. You guys can contact me in any of, of my social media platforms. They're all Talk Ag to me, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, pretty much wherever, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, just continue the conversation as usual. And like, thank all you guys so much for listening. That's it I have for this episode. I hope to see you next week. And don't forget, if you ate today, thank a farmer. Mm-hmm.